0: I promised Matthew, and finally that day has arrived. And so let me invite you to uh, open up to Matthew chapter one. Now we're going to read a genealogy, uh, which we don't usually do. I mean, we're we're tolerant if we ask someone, "Hey, where you're from?" and they say, "Oh, my people are from Hardin County, or something like that." We're okay with that. But generally, when we ask when someone's from, they don't give us a 42-generation long list of where they're from. But Matthew thought this would be wise, and I think we'll see by the end of our time together why it was abundantly wise uh, for Matthew to introduce Jesus in this way. If you get lost in the names, maybe let me make this suggestion. To view Matthew's genealogy as a drum roll that's leading up to the symbol crash that is the arrival of Jesus Christ. All of these generations are unfolding. These men and women that were brought to confront here are leading us to the appearance of Jesus in time and space and in world history 2,000 years ago. And you may not see it immediately, but I hope we'll see it by the time we're done. What we're going to read in the genealogy of Matthew, verses 1 through verse 17, is actually the same thing that's being said, the same themes that are coming into a conclusion in the last three verses of Matthew, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, a passage Christians often refer to as the Great Commission. So let me read to you God's word. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. I was going to do a ramney and have you clap when you arrive there. Wasn't that a great sermon last week? That was so good. Man, man, oh man, so encouraging. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac the father of Jacob and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron and Hezron the father of Ram. and Ram the father of Aminadab and Amminadab the father of Nashon and Nashon the father of Salmon. And Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh, the father of Amos. Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. And Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Akim, and Akim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan. Mathan the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. Who is called Christ? So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Matthew 28, verse 18. Brings us to the end of the book, a place we'll see again in a few years. (laughs) Matthew 28, verse 18. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, we are in Your presence right now. We're not deported. We're not exiled. We're not at a distance from You if we're in Christ. Lord, I pray that we would spend this time in Your Word conscious that we're in Your presence. Lord, we pray that as Your Word is preached, we would see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And whether there's an application or not, we would be changed. Because just seeing glory is the most transformative reality in the world. Lord, we also pray for all those who don't know You, aren't sure they know You, are distant from You. We pray that faith would come to them by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. And Lord, I pray for Your Holy Spirit's particular activity in giving me words and help and boldness to preach this Word as the Word of God, which it really is. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. We're beginning uh, this morning a series in the Gospel according to Matthew. And in the Bible, you've got four different Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you've ever done a Bible reading program and you didn't know your Bible very well, you probably had some experience along the way where you're like, am I not reading the same thing over and over again? And the answer is yes and no. As you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you are reading the same stories, many of them, over and over again. But you're reading them for a particular reason. God has chosen to give us four Gospels, four records of Jesus' life, because He, he wants those Gospels to function in our life much the way different camera angles function in, the, in, the, in, in a well-made movie. The different camera angles show us the same scene, but from a different angle that show us different aspects of what's going on. These four Gospels function much the same way that four witnesses would function, four reliable witnesses would function in the life of a courtroom, where different witnesses saying the same thing, but not exactly the same way, actually confirm the truth of what's going on. If four people show up and just spout off the exact same words, you know, this is rigged. But if four witnesses show up and testify to the exact same person, each with their own take on what's going on, it actually confirms and strengthens our sense of what's going on. All of the four Gospels are like four singers singing the same song. Each of them adding their own bit of harmony to help us see more of the beauty of really what's happening in Jesus Christ. Now, we're heading in particularly into the Gospel of Matthew. And there is actually nowhere in the Gospel of Matthew where Matthew says, hey, I wrote this. There's no introduction to Matthew in Matthew. One of the effects it seems that Jesus had on Matthew was that it made Matthew want to get to Jesus. It made Matthew want to show us Jesus. The early church fathers, the people who were nearest to Matthew, uh, they are universal in saying this was written by Matthew. But Matthew never comes out and says, hey, I want to make sure I got my name on this thing. But it's clear that Matthew, this Jewish disciple of Jesus, wrote us a very Jewish gospel. Now, I'm going to say one thing to you this morning. Uh, about paper Bibles. I am not going to say anything that's supposed to be guilt-producing to those of you who are looking up the verses on your phone. But here's what I'm going to say. Matthew is constantly quoting the Old Testament. And even when he's not quoting the Old Testament, he's referring to the Old Testament. And even when he's not referring to the Old Testament, he's subtly alluding to the Old Testament which means that I am going to be turning back in my Bible to the Old Testament all the time throughout the Gospel of Matthew. And if you've ever sat there and thought, I wish I knew my Bible better. I wish my kids knew their Bible better. I promise you that if you'll bring a paper Bible and flip around through this passage, we will find that over the coming years, we don't just learn Matthew. But we learn the whole Bible. What do you got against phones? They're not as fast. I can bring almost any person up here right now, paper, Bible, and phone in hand and say, look up such and such verse. The paper Bible person gets there faster even when they don't know their Bible. I've watched it happen. Seen an elders meeting. There used to be one elder who used to mock the rest of us who were looking up verses on our phones. We couldn't get there as fast as the guys who had a paper Bible. And if you have just wanted to learn the whole Bible, learn how to move around it so that you actually know what's fulfilling what and what's referring to what and how the whole thing fits together, I think we would do well. Not as a law. Not as anything anyone feels guilty about. No one should be sneaking their phone out. I'm a phone Christian. No. Not what I'm trying to do at all. I'm just saying I think I can help you. And I think I can serve us in the process of looking through the whole scriptures and seeing how they are, Matthew shows us what's fulfilled from the Old Testament. And we become skilled in connecting our Bibles together as we look through the Gospel of Matthew. Now, I thought about over the course of this last week, and thank you for everyone who prayed for me. I thought about preaching sort of an introductory sermon for Matthew, not sort of just landing on one passage, but just sort of starting with an introductory sermon. And that could be a good thing to do. What it might miss is it might miss that Matthew had his own ideas about how to introduce himself. That actually Matthew decided how his sermon ought to be introduced. And if I could play that sort of Jesus card, Matthew was actually led by the Spirit in terms of how he thought Jesus ought to be introduced. And the way Matthew thought Jesus ought to be introduced was through a 42-generation-long genealogy. And you and I, actually what my job is to do right now, and you see this in different commentaries and different sermons, my job as a preacher is to tell you how hard it will be for you as modern Westerners to follow this genealogy. And how poor you, Matthew chose to lead out his gospel in a genealogy. But instead, I'm going to rebuke you and tell you that the reason you don't like genealogies is because there's something wrong with you. You're the problem, not Matthew. The reason we don't like genealogies is because we're so fundamentally individualistic to the core. Because most of us don't have any idea whatever happened in our lives prior to maybe our grandparents. And any kind of historical rootedness that any of you who have served overseas know well about, we've lost. And our individualism makes us think that my life's about me, fulfilling my desires, doing what's good for me, you be you, that's what I'm supposed to be all about. And the people I like are people who are all about them. So Jocko Willink is cool because he's got self-discipline. Or... You name the next person. That influencer is so cool on Instagram because the oatmeal product they put on their skin just makes them radiate like the sun. (laughs) But Matthew is not so in the moment. He's rooted in history. And he's rooted in the history specifically of God's people. So one of the reasons we don't like genealogies is because we're so individualistic that the idea of tracing someone back 42 generations just feels like a waste of time to us. Another reason we don't like genealogy is because we're so secular. Secularism pushes God to the side. Secularism looks at daily life and doesn't think about how God is involved. What Matthew's genealogy does is it says God has been involved in this particular family line generation after generation after generation, even when it didn't look like he was doing anything. I mean, if you would interviewed, say, Nathan, the guy a couple of generations before Jesus, and said, what God, what's God up to? Nathan would have said, I got no idea. I'm just a Jew who's under Roman occupation. Doesn't look like God's doing anything to me. And of course, the secret answer would have been, no, the fact that you're alive, Nathan, is proof that God is carrying out His promises to bring His Christ into the world. And so, Matthew's genealogy demands a certain view of the world. Matthew's genealogy, it really assumes a certain view of the world. And the view of the world is this. It's a world where God is involved. And God has made promises to particular people that are fulfilled, not in their lifetimes, not even just over the horizon of their lifetimes, but in their children's children, sometimes thousands of years after they've ever were born. You want a good reason that you should be faithful? It might benefit someone a couple thousand years from now. That would be enough. That would be reason enough to be faithful. So here's Matthew, and he assumes God is involved in history. And here's Matthew, he assumes that God has made promises to particular people, and those promises are fulfilled in their children. And actually, that's not quite right. The promises are not so much fulfilled in their children, they're, they're fulfilled in one particular child. There's one particular descendant who fulfills these promises. Now, if you read that genealogy and you just got lost, which all of us did, right? I I read it out loud. This party, wait, am I in the right spot? If you read that genealogy, it just feels like a wash of names that you can barely pronounce from a culture you don't know much about. One of the nice things that Matthew has done is he's actually written this in such a way that lets you know not all these names are of equal importance. He's highlighted a few names. Before we even look down, you could probably say them. What's the most important name other than Jesus's in the genealogy? David, you knew it just by reading it. The way Matthew wrote it highlighted certain things. Right? When I was a kid, they would say that there were subliminal messages coming through your TV right? that would sort of make you notice certain things. And, and, and Matthew has written in a way that, that lifts certain names off the page. All the names are important. They all represent God carrying out His promise and bringing things to His Christ. But, but he wrote certain things in a way that highlights certain names. Actually, he wrote certain things that highlight two particular names and one event. You know what the event was? The deportation to Babylon. It doesn't really fit in there, but it keeps coming up. And so we, we need to notice. Let me just let me show you what I'm talking about. right? He highlights the names by mentioning them at the beginning. Verse 1, the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So these two names are, are more important than the rest, if you will. They, he doesn't want you to get lost in the weeds. Jesus is the son of all of these people. Jotham, Mathan, you name it. Hezekiah, Uzziah, Joram. But there's two names in particular that ought to jump to the top. David and Abraham. And then, the, the way he sums things up, there's this summary verse down in verse 17. And the summary verse sort of lets you know, hey, this is what's important. Don't, don't miss this. Don't, don't get lost in the Mathan weeds. He says, So all the generations from Abraham to David, for 14 generations, there's one big division. Abraham, David. And from David, says it again, to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And And from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. So we ought to have in our minds... That as we read the genealogy of Jesus, what Matthew's trying to do is he's he's trying to situate us. He's trying to situate us in what world? In a world where God is active. God is working generation after generation after generation, even when it doesn't look like he's doing anything. Even if you're the Mathan instead of the Jesus, right? Even if you're the Jotham instead of the David. He's working and working through all these generations. And what he's doing is he's bringing Promises to completion. He's bringing promises to completion in his children. And there's three particular promises I think he wants us to focus on. Matthew is telling us that Jesus fulfills the promise to David. Matthew is telling us that Jesus fulfills the promise to Abraham. And Matthew is telling us that Jesus fulfills the promise to those who were deported to Babylon. Well, let's look at that. Let's think about that. What does it mean that Jesus is the son of David? If you're making points, here's my first point. Jesus fulfills the promise made to David. Well, what it means is that Jesus has a particular relationship to David. Not just a biological relationship, though He does have that. The relationship that Jesus has to David is that Jesus fulfills the promises made to David. Now, we're watching the news lately, and one thing you get in your mind when you watch the news is Every ruler wants to be a little bigger and a little grander than they currently are. And the history of warfare and the history of difficulty in the the world is every ruler wanting to be a little bigger, a little more powerful, a little longer than they currently are. And there's only one ruler in the history of mankind who has been told your kingdom will be a little bigger, a lot bigger, and a little more powerful, a lot more powerful, and it'll last a little longer, a lot longer, than you ever dreamed. And that ruler was David. Now, if you'll go back in your Bibles. Okay, paper or phone? Let's see who gets there first. 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7. Say amen. 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 Was, were you paper or phone people? Paper, paper. paper. <laughs> Confirmation bias. I'm seeing what I want to see. Second Samuel chapter seven. Second chapters. Samuel chapter seven. This is God making promises to King David. David was a king of Israel three thousand years ago. From now, a thousand years or so before Jesus, God's making promises to David. And if you look down at Second Samuel seven sixteen, now you on your phone, you need to go back out to the chapter part. Find the number, scroll through that. <laughs> Push sixteen. Try not to try to ignore that text that just came in. If you look at second Samuel seven sixteen, you paper people please, peacefully waiting. <laughs> God says to David, and your house, when you hear house here, think dynasty. Like the house of Windsor. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. David was promised a kingdom that would last forever. And the Jews knew it. The Jews knew it. Uh, one of the funny things that comedians do in America is they go around and they try to prove how ignorant Americans are, right? So they'll walk up to Americans, man on the street interviews, you've all seen these, where they walk up to people on the street and they say, hey, who is the first president of the United States? And they're like, oh, Abraham Lincoln, I don't know. And, and, and uh, if you weren't laughing, it's because you're one of those Americans. <laughs> and then they go up and, you know, and ask these questions like, who, who was and They ask them really basic, right? Real basic. And see, it's fun, they actually do this with, in Canada. They actually send reporters down here to ask you all questions about Canada, which has various pleasant results. If you'd walked up to a Jew in Jesus' time And said, who is David? There's not anyone who doesn't know. Because they were actively expecting his descendant to come. They were waiting for this descendant. I mean, they had a promise in their people that there was going to be a king come from their line who would last forever. And so when Matthew says to his audience, this Christ has come, The descendant of David is here. He's got everybody's attention. Which means this, for the next year or so, or two years, or whatever it takes of your life. As we read through Matthew, what we're seeing as we read through Matthew is we're seeing unfold just what kind of king he was. Matthew's making the claim right off the bat. He is the Christ. That word means Messiah. It means anointed one. He is the king. Which king? Not just any king. Not a self-made king. Not a, hey, would you vote for me king? No, a king who was born to a royal line. The king who was descended from David. He's the one who was promised. That's what Matthew is claiming at the start of his gospel. Here is the Davidic king. Here is the one who fulfills this promise. But the rest of the gospel tells us what kind of king he is. And here's the, great, here's the great news. He's not like any king we've ever seen in world history before. I mean, think, think about this. I actually was converted. Reading through portions of Matthew was key. And you think about some of the things Jesus says in Matthew that just distinguish him from every other king. Like, try this one out for size. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. I tell you, you shouldn't even look at a woman to lust for her. What kind of king is this? You can't make a law. You can't that's not an enforceable law. Right? The cops can't I saw it! Cops can't arrest you for that one. It's a law that makes people who aren't trying to eat you up sexually in their heads all the time. It's a law that takes creeps out of the picture and transforms them. It's a law that makes you want to spit out pornography instead of embrace it. I mean, think about what Jesus said. You've heard it said, you know, He talks about divorce. What does He say? Don't get divorced. Except for sexual immorality, there's no reason to get divorced. What does that do? just makes it so that all the things that you ever wanted to pull away from your spouse because of, you don't. Because King Jesus is keeping everything beautiful in the world. He's producing lust-free hearts, marriages that stay together, even in the midst of difficulty. He's just a beautiful king. His commands are beautiful. Right? Think about it. He, he, he says, don't... This is the Sermon on the Mount. It's just amazing. He says, don't, don't even swear. I'll do this or I'll do that. Don't, don't, don't take oaths. He says, oh, is it lawful? We come at this question. Is it lawful that for Christians to take oaths? You're missing the point. He's making honest people. How many of you, the deepest pains in your life is because someone wanted a sexual relationship they shouldn't have had? Because someone divorced when they shouldn't have. Or because someone lied when they should have told the truth. And here's King Jesus coming in to make a people of real righteousness. He is a beautiful king. And all the kings of the world, they're always, more for me, 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 more for me. And Jesus says, the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many you go I'm a liar I'm a luster I'd get divorced real easy if someone bugged me I'm out I'm not not shackling my my whole life to someone who brings me down that's me yep and he came for you this king came for you this king came not to get you to serve him but so he could serve you and give his life as a ransom payment for many. Now there's a big tension big tension in Matthew's gospel big tension when it comes to this kingship right? Jesus is the eternal king, right? What happens in Matthew's gospel? Jesus does something uh, eternal kings don't do anything coming to mind? He dies. He dies. But he dies the way an eternal king would die. He dies after saying, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and after I die on the cross, I'll be raised after three days. Called it. He declares what's going to happen, and then even when he's dead, make sure it happens. That's the kind of king he is. And so it's not an accident that after setting the stage in Matthew chapter 1, he is the Davidic king. He comes from David. He's the eternal king. It's not an accident that after setting the stage, the gospel ends with all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. You see what I'm saying? Matthew's setting the stage. You know, people come along to Jesus and they, they, they grab the Sermon on the Mount out of Matthew and they go, oh, he's such a good teacher. He's such a good teacher. And he was, he's the best teacher. But you can't rip him out of context. He's not just a teacher. He's a king. And he's a king who came to teach and then to die for those who hadn't followed his teaching, to ransom them out of death and hell, And then to give Him His Spirit so they could begin to obey His beautiful Word. If you don't know Him this morning, won't you submit to Him? Have you got anything going on that's more beautiful than this kind of leadership? Are you leading yourself? Is some other religion leading you in anything that could even be compared to this? In fact, I command you this morning on behalf of King Jesus, bow your knee to Him. Repent to Him. Trust in him, follow him. The second thing that Matthew highlights is that he is the son of Abraham, the son of Abraham. The book of the genealogy of Jesus, and I actually love this a, a literal translation of that phrase the book of the genealogy, verse one, chapter one, verse one, could actually be the, the book of the origins. This is Jesus's origin story, we know origin stories. Hollywood producers spend millions making origin stories so you can know where Spider-Man came from and where the Hulk came from. This is Matthew giving you an origin story. And he wants you to tell, tell you that he's not special because he got bit by a radioactive spider. He's special because he's the son of Abraham. Now, who's Abraham? Well, he's one of the many Gentiles in this genealogy. Gentiles are non-Jews. Now, Abraham is a father of the Jews, but he's a father of the Jews because he started out a Gentile, and then God called him to himself. And if you were going to sum up Abraham in one word, you know, we can sum up David in one word. David, one word, king. If you're going to sum up Abraham in one word, here's what it would be blessing. And specifically, blessing for the nations. That's what Abraham was promised. If you go back in your Bible to the book of Genesis, go phone people, go. Genesis. Go back to Genesis chapter 15. What's that? Genesis chapter 15. We get this in multiple places in Genesis, but I'll I'll read this one to you. This is one of the many times God comes to Abraham with promises. And He says to Abraham... I'm sorry, I'm actually wanting to be in Genesis 12. Which I just turned the page and I'm there. Anyway, so Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you." What's Abraham promised? Land. He's promised land. Go to a land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. What's Abraham promised? He'll become a great nation. And I will bless you. What's Abraham promised? He'll be blessed. What's that blessing? Well, it can be defined a lot of ways, but in Genesis, the high point of this blessing is I will be your God. I'll be your God, Abraham. I'll lead you. I'll guide you. You'll be the one, I'll be the one you worship. I'll be your God. So go to your country, to your land. I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and Him who dishonors you. I will curse. And in you, Abraham, your offspring, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Every Jew knew this. They weren't going to fail that man on the street test. They knew they were the descendants of Abraham. And in Abraham, God had ordained that they would bless all the World. And you know how well they'd done at that job? Pathetic. Paul actually says in the book of Romans, he says, You Jews, because of you, people curse God's name. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. But what Matthew is saying to us is, Hey, here comes a true Jew. Here comes the real Israel. Here comes the offspring of Abraham. He's going to make the great nation, he's going to give them the land. He is going to be the one who blesses all the nations. And you know what? This idea that Jesus is the Christ, this idea that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of David, and that He brings the blessing of Abraham, they actually come together in the Gospel of Matthew. Anyone know the most famous line in the book of Matthew? This would be a tough one. Anyone want to risk it? What's the worst thing? Wrong in front of 600 people? That's no big deal. It's Peter's confession. Right? It's Peter's confession. It's the centerpiece. What what Matthew's telling us in the genealogy, Peter gets, oh, you know, 16 chapters in. Jesus says to Peter, who do you say that I am? He says, you are the Christ. What's Jesus' response? Blessed are you, Peter. That's the blessing. That's the highest blessing you can ever get. To see who Jesus really is. That He's the King. That this suffering servant is the King. That's what Peter saw. Peter saw it. You're the Christ. Jesus pronounced it. That's a blessing right there. To see me for who I am. That's the greatest thing you could ever be blessed with. Okay, so here's... Matthew writing his genealogy and he says, okay, I want to make sure they connect him to David because David is the king and Jesus is the king. And I want to make sure they connect him to Abraham because Abraham is going to bless the nations. And so Matthew writes this whole gospel and throughout the gospel, there's all kinds of hints, all kinds of hints that Jesus is going to bless the nations. There's actually hints right here in the genealogy, right? Who's in the genealogy? Who stands out to you? The women especially stand out, don't they? Because usually genealogies are dads, but these these women are generally Gentiles, nations that get blessed, like Ruth. Right? Bathsheba was married to a Hittite. What what happens in chapter two of Matthew? And I'm not expecting you to know, but we we celebrate at Christmas, right? The Magi come to worship him. What's What's Matthew saying? This is the Gentile. This is the one who's going to bless the Gentiles. And then the Great Commission. The Great Commission at the end of the book. All authority has been given to me. David. Eternal King. All authority has been given to me. So what? What do you do now? Go where? Make disciples where? Where do you get that idea Go and make disciples of all nations. We want to watch this all the way through Matthew. Because it's not just at the beginning of the end. We're noticing what's at the beginning of this. We notice what's in the whole book. And when I teach preaching... One of the things I'll say to the guys when I'm trying to teach preaching is you want to get everything you're saying to line up like an arrow behind that arrowhead. You want to, you want to get all these different facts you've studied and you want to get, see if you can get them all into one really straight arrowhead so that everything lands right on the the tip of the arrow and goes as deep in as it can. That's what Matthew's going to do for 28 chapters. He's, he's just lining it all up. So listen, 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 listen to me. He's the son of Abraham. He's the son of Abraham. He's the one who's going to bring the blessing to the Gentiles. And then he's going to, in chapter 28, he's going to land with this application. Therefore, take this to all the nations. Because the one who was the son of Abraham has come, the one who blesses all the nations. Come, beloved, when we send out church planters, when we send out missionaries, we are not doing something that distracts. We're doing something that's on target. Right in line with the very purposes of Jesus in the world. To bless all the nations. And when, when when I will make and I, you will hear this a lot in the next few little few years, when I make application, this is we ought to share the gospel more. We ought to be discipling one another more. It's not me trying to give you a guilt trip. It's me trying to line myself up and line you up with God's eternal purposes in the world. And we're going to see it from start to finish in Matthew. Last point, most complicated. Let's try to do it in three minutes. <laughs> Matthew speaks to these people and highlights David, Abraham, and the deportation to Babylon. What's going on there? The deportation to Babylon. Well, if, you, if, you, if you're going to know anything about Jewish history in the Old Testament, you need to know two X words. If you're going to know any basics of Jewish history in the Old Testament, you need to know two X words Exodus and exile. Same with me. Exodus and exile. Some of you just stared back. Try that again. Exodus and exile. Okay. The Exodus is when God takes his people out from slavery. They were in slavery in Egypt. He takes them out from slavery in the Exodus. He then brings them into the promised land. And they sin so repeatedly and so continually that they're placed in exile. They're actually deported. They're evicted. They're like tenants in their own house and they get booted so that they have to live in Babylon. But there's something confusing here. There's something confusing here, because technically, this this exile only lasted 70 years. By the time Jesus comes on the scene, the exile is two histories of America ago, okay? So why would you even bring this up? Why would you bring this up? Why would you bring this up? Hey, David's important, Abraham's important, and that deportation to Babylon, that's important. Why would you bring that up? That's so 500 years ago. And here's why. Because when the Jews came out of exile, they never came out of exile. When the Jews were sent away from the presence of God in the exile, they never re-entered it. right down to this very day that Jesus arrived, they are still not in the presence of God. Let me illustrate this to you this way. Early, early on in the history of Israel, God says, I want to be with you. And the way I'm going to be with you is I'm going to build a tent, a tent of worship called a tabernacle. And you go read Exodus 20-40, through and there's all these instructions for this tabernacle, this tent, this place where God is going to be present with them. Listen to those words. Present and with them in this tent. And when it's all completely built, when all the pegs and all the skins and all the elements of worship are all completely built, you know what happens? The glory of God descends on that tabernacle. And they can't even, they can't even stand in there because the presence of God is so thick and glorious Okay, fast forward, I don't know, like 500 years or so. And David gets the idea we should convert this tent into a solid building, a temple. And so you read uh, through the Old Testament, they build this temple. And once Solomon builds this temple, you know what happens when the temple is all built? The glory of God descends. And he's with them, he's present. It says his glory was so thick they couldn't even minister in the temple because he was just there. Well, then they, go, they get kicked out of the land. They go into exile. The deportation to Babylon comes. It lasts 70 years. They are being kicked out of the presence of God. That's what's happening. They are booted from the presence, away from the temple. That's what's going on. 70 years later, they get back. What's the first thing they do? What's one of the first things they do? They rebuild that temple. And once it's built, what happens? Nothing. They lay the foundation and it says the old guys and the young guys, well, the young guys screamed and the old guys wept. That's what it says. The old guys looked at it and says, this is nothing like the temple we used to have. And the young guys go, this is awesome. And the old guys are like, you don't have a clue. But there's no record anywhere of the glory of God descending on that temple. Jesus gets shows up. That temple is still there. Herod's rebuilt it, made it all fancy, but there is nothing good going on there. He's get, the only place Jesus gets angry. Is it all the garbage going around that temple? Why does Matthew highlight the deportation to Babylon? Because Jesus is the one who's come to bring him back. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the presence of God. Jesus is the one who's going to die on the cross rip the curtain of the temple in half and bring people back into the presence of God. And beloved, can I just say this? This is actually your life without Jesus. Your body, shaped just perfectly to be a temple for God. But if you don't know Christ, it's just a body. It's just empty and devoid of anything glorious at all. And Jesus has come to die on the cross for your sins and to give you His Holy Spirit so that your very body can be the temple of God. Again. Let's go to the Great Commission, and then we'll close. How's the Great Commission end? I will be with you always. You're not in exile anymore. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm the Davidic king. All authority has been given to me. I am the fulfillment of Abraham. Go to all the nations. You're not in exile anymore. I'm going to be with you. No matter where you go, I'm with you. And as we read through the Gospel of Matthew, and we see the miracles, we see the blind seeing, we see teaching that penetrates our hearts, we see parables that define the kingdom, that's who's with us today. That Jesus, that one's with us always, even till the end of the age. Father, we thank You so much for Your grace and Your mercy in showing us Christ. Lord, we pray that we would be transformed from one degree of glory to another into His very likeness. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.